Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different regions, the different grape varieties, the different styles of wine, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, we're going to look at the regional structure of Champagne. Within Champagne, there is just one appellation for sparkling wine, which is the Champagne appellation itself. There are, of course, others for um, still wine, but these are very small and not relevant to this course. The appellation for Champagne covers a broad region, 150 by 80 kilometers in size, straggling four different departments. The two most important are Marne and Orbe, and 66% of plantings are within the Marne department, and 25% within the Orbe, which is much further south and quite close to Chablis. Within Champagne, there are nearly 35,000 hectares of uh, vineyard planted. One hectare in Champagne equals 900,000 euros, and there's been a great deal of um, rise in price within Champagne over the last 25 years. This land is extremely expensive and coveted. And over the last 10 years, there has been a debate of whether to expand Champagne, which would uh, decrease the cost of land and therefore the cost of grapes and the cost of wine. Certainly those who live outside Champagne and own land on the edges would like that expansion to happen because the price of their land would skyrocket, whereas those within Champagne are uh, a little more against it, especially those who are on the fringes and might actually lose some land if the borders were redefined. So nothing has happened, but there's been lots of debate about expanding Champagne a little bit. In Champagne, one parcel of land equals 585 vines, and that's a Napoleonic decree. And there are 278,000 different parcels, so extremely fragmented. Again, going back to Napoleon, where he brought in the rule that all all land and property had to be equally divided by the sons, and so the land just got fragmented and fragmented over generations. And and this land, 90% of it is owned by the growers, and the average holding for each grower is just over two hectares, just emphasizing how fragmented it is. And as we'll look at in the next episode, the relationship between growers and producers is a very delicate one and a very interesting dynamic. In the vineyards, eight to 10,000 vines per hectare are planted, so quite high density, although back in the 19th century, it used to be 50,000 vines per hectare, so quite a difference. 8,000 vines per hectare means that the vines are planted 1.5 by 1.5 meters apart, whereas 10,000 vines per hectare is just a meter by one meter apart. So since the First World War, there been a lot of changes. Champagne went through a devastating period of around 40 to 50 years, where phylloxera hit the region in the 1890s, and then World War I devastated the vineyards in the, uh, 1914 to 1918. And so after that, the vineyards were replanted, and there was um, a refocus on how to plant the vineyards. The vine density went down from 50,000 to 8 to 10,000, and the focus was on three different grape varieties. There used to be a lot more planted in Champagne, but now three varieties account for 99% of plantings, and that has been the case since the First World War. And this is because those three varieties work perfectly for Champagne, something that the producers and growers have worked out over the centuries. And those three grape varieties in descending order are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Meunier. So there are 50 different clones of these grapes. They have a balance between sugar and acidity. So the grapes for sparkling wine in general should always have high acidity because there's an aging process before those wines are finished and ready for release. But they also need to have some sugar in them to have that ripeness and to have that body. And also with that sugar, you want that physiological ripeness, but not the high alcohol. So again, it's got to be a balance between the amount of sugar in the grapes without having too much of them. Yields are generally high, 
And here, champagne is unusual because high yields can result in quality wine. And importantly, they must be disease resistant. Champagne's climate is quite extreme, and so there are lots of diseases within the region, especially downy mildew and also powdery mildew. And so the clones used must be resistant to those diseases. Rootstocks are used, and these rootstocks have to have high resistance to phylloxera, obviously, but also chlorosis. Uh, chlorosis in these chalky soils of champagne is a problem, and so rootstock that is resistant to chlorosis is extremely important, and 80% of all rootstocks are 41B, and this is a rootstock which likes chalky soils. Again, talking about this extreme climate, organic viticulture is very difficult because the number of pests, diseases and viruses and mildews especially the problem for the disease. But the CIVC is promoting sustainable viticulture, so it's trying to be as sustainable and environmentally friendly as possible. And a lot of growers and producers do lean towards organic, um, even though it may, they may not be able to be certified organic because they have to do something in the vineyard to stop those diseases. But they're certainly as sustainable as possible. There are actually three biodynamic producers, Louis Roederer, is mainly biodynamic, not completely, but their top quality wines are all biodynamic, including Cristal, their prestige cuvee. Uh, Fleury is another biodynamic producer, and also L'Armandier Berrier. Within Champagne, there are two major urban centres, Reims and Epinay. So Reims is an old Roman city, very affluent, not just uh, for, from wine, but also from trade, remembering that Champagne has historically been a trade centre. And just walking through Reims, you can feel the money. There are many producers based in Reims, and the reason for that is partly because it's the largest city in the region, which is over 300,000 people, but also because within Reims are what are called crayères, and these are underground cellars which were dug up by the Romans to build the city, and so the city is made from the chalky soils that uh, proliferate around Champagne. And these crayères are useful for two reasons. One, during the many wars that have affected the region, they serve as um, hiding places for the locals under the buildings. But also in terms of champagne production, they are perfect for storing champagne. And producers have millions and millions of bottles for the reserve wines, for the ageing, which will uh, go into the blending. And these crayères have the perfect temperature, but they're also a, a long network of tunnels which are able to store all these wines. And if you want to see what the crayères look like, go on a tour at Tassinger or Pomeray, two big producers, and they will take you through the underground tunnels and you'll see the cellars and you also see the chalky soil from underground and not just from above. Epinay is much smaller and to the south and this is famous for its Champagne Mile, one of the richest streets in the world lined with uh, rich producers with millions of bottles in storage such as Moetie Chandon, the largest producer in Champagne and next door to it Paul Roger. The smaller places in Champagne are the villages, and there are 319 villages within Champagne. 17 of them are Grand Cru, and 42 of them are Premier Cru. And this Grand Cru, Premier Cru system is different from Burgundy to the south. And in Burgundy, the Premier Cru and Grand Cru are single vineyard, vineyards with a name and historic uh, provenance. Within Champagne, Grand Cru and Premier Cru are villages. So a broader term than Burgundy, which is very specific. And this is because blending is central to the style of Champagne. Single vineyard wines do exist in Champagne, but they're very unusual. And that's in part because everything is so fragmented that it's almost impossible to make a single vineyard wine or to have enough to sell. And so producers source from different vineyards within a village and then label it Premier Cru or Grand Cru to produce that balanced and very consistent style of wine for the producer. 
the system Premier Crew and Grand Crew comes from a shell de crew, and this means the the rating of the the crew or of the villagers. And this was set by the CIVC up until the early 1990s when it was officially outlawed by the EU because the price setting was seen as a um, monopoly. And uh, the way that this worked was that if, if um, a village was given 100 points, it was labelled a Grand Cru. If it was 90 to 99, it was labelled a Premier Cru. And this is part of the price setting. And so a Grand Cru could get 100% of the price that had been set by the CIVC. Premier Cru could get 90 to 99 of the percent of the uh, price that it was that was set so this no longer exists but the um, the premier crew and grand crew are set with the 17 grand crew accounting for 13 percent of appellation production so let's look at the different regions of uh, champagne and there are five main regions the furthest north is Montagne de Ronce, and this lies between Ronce to the north and Epinay to the south. And these are slopes connecting the two um, cities, and these are capped with forests. And so you'll see the slopes covered in vineyard with a high-density planting, and then trees on top. And it's pretty fun to go to the top of the, uh, the slopes and look down on the vines, down into the valley. 40% Pinot Noir in Montagne de Ronce, 36% Meunier, and 24% Chardonnay. And this is divided into two um, regions, the northern villages, such as Rie la Montagne, Mailly Champagne, Vezenay and Vezi. And these produce quite structured and fresh wines, a little bit cooler here. Unusually, there are north-facing slopes which produce quality wine. Throughout uh, France, not just Champagne, we generally think of south-facing slopes because they receive the sunshine throughout the day to get the grapes fully ripe. But in Montagne de Ronce, there are north-facing slopes producing quality wine because warm air builds up during the day, and so there's enough heat during the night to keep the grapes ripening. To the south is Ambonay and Bouzy, two Grand Cru villages, which produce more depth and power to the wines. And this is where wine for rosé champagne is generally produced, especially the really good stuff. Bouzy itself is a village which produces high-quality still Pinot Noir, quite acidic tannic wines, not for the general taste, but they can be extremely good. And these Pinot Noir wines will be added to a white wine to produce a rosé champagne. Also within Montagne de Rance to the northwest is Le Massif de Saint-Thierry, a region which used to be, or a sub-region which used to be quite important, but has been devastated by wars, uh, but it does uh, produce some quality wine, uh, less fruity and more powerful than the northern villages that it's not too far from. Going to the southwest, we have Valle de la Marne, which is 62% um, Meunier, 22% Pinot Noir, and 16% Chardonnay. So Meunier dominates here, and that's because the Valle vineyards are prone to frost. And Meunier is a late budding and early ripening grape, so it's extremely important for those practical purposes of being able to plant it here and get it ripe without any issues with frost. And the wines produced here are easy drinking and fruity, which is what Meunier should be, contributing to the younger styles of Champagne and to the non-vintage Champagnes when they're drunk young. As you go further west in Valle de la Marne, the quality lowers because the slopes are north-facing and there isn't the warm air to keep them warm. The best Pinot Noir comes from Aïe Champagne and Morais Aïe, which are basically within um, Montagne de Ronce, right on the border. And these produce really uh, weighty, full-bodied Pinot Noir, very high quality. Then overlooking Epinay to the south of the valley, there is Dizy, Auvilliers and Cumier. And Auvilliers is, of course, the village where the abbey that Dom Perignon was Selamast at is located. Going to the south, south of um, Montagne de Rance, is the Côte de Blanc. 
And this is some of the most sought-after land and grapes within Champagne. The Côte de Blanc takes its name because Chardonnay dominates here. 82% Chardonnay, 9% Pinot Noir, and 9% Meunier. And the Chardonnay here, extremely elegant, finesse, very delicate, restrained aromas, certainly not fruity. Exactly what you want from Chardonnay within Champagne. Important Grand Cru villages here include Cramon, which produces delicate wines, Vies, more harmonious, balanced wines, Auger, quite mineral, and Le Menil sur Auger, which are quite sharp and acidic. And with age, these wines will become a little bit richer, with creamier biscuit and nutty aromas. Extremely high quality, and a lot of the really good Blanc de Blanc will come from the Côte de Blanc. Going further south is the Côte de Cézanne, which is basically a continuation of Côte de Blanc, but the soils are a bit heavier, and so the Chardonnay produced here is richer and rounder and less subtle and less delicate. And so a lot of the uh, Chardonnay here is for non-vintage wine. Wines which generally aren't considered to be as age-worthy. 64% Chardonnay, 21% Meunier, and 15% Pinot Noir within the Côte de Cézanne. And then much further south is the Côte des Bar, and this is so detached from the rest of Champagne that for a while it was considered a second-rate um, part of Champagne and it's given a second designation until the 1920s when it was upgraded to be on a par with the rest of Champagne. And it's very close to Chablis, so that gives an indication of how further south it is than the rest of Champagne around Reims and Epinay. 87% Pinot Noir, 7% Chardonnay and 5% Meunier, so quite a bit warmer here producing riper and fruitier wines. Within the Côte de Bar is Montgueu, which is a hill which is very trendy right now. Uh, the soils are chalky, and this is for Chardonnay, spicy and mineral. And it's considered that the, the wines here can be extremely high quality, and it's a designation in its own right, and it has been called the Montrachet of Champagne. So those are, that's the region and the structure of Champagne. In the next episode, we'll look at the producers. So thank you for listening. I'm Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.